are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. All right, well, we are in a series called Beyond Blessed, and the premise of this series is based on a book by Robert Morris, Pastor Robert Morris, um, who wrote this book, Beyond Blessed. And I would encourage you, we're not even really covering uh, much of the book uh, other than just a a few elements to it. It's a fabulous book. I encourage you to read it um, if you can. A few years ago, Bishop Pasley II did a series called The Blessed Life. And this, that series was based on a book called The Blessed Life from the same author and uh, same pastor. And uh, Beyond Blessed is the sequel to that book. So there's two books, The Blessed Life and then Beyond Blessed. And what Robert Morris says is that really the Beyond Blessed is, even though it was written second, it was, it's really the prequel to The Blessed Life. The Blessed Life... Uh, Dave Ramsey does the foreword for Beyond Blessed, and and he he uses this analogy. He said, Pastor Robert compares being wise with money to a person standing on two legs. The Blessed Life, the first book, explained the importance of one leg, which was generous giving. Beyond Blessed focuses the on the other leg, which is biblical stewardship. And uh, Nathan Barnum covered that last week and the week before, but uh, that both of those elements are necessary, that giving is necessary, being a generous giver is important, but really our capacity to give sits on the strength of our ability to be good stewards. A lot of people want to, you know, be generous in moments. Uh, you feel passion to give or to be a part of something that's going on, whether it's a, a church need or something uh, around you. But how many times are we limited in being able to respond to that because of our own uh, uh Potential for giving, maybe that could be due to a lack of stewardship or uh, something that we've done to our finances that really limit our capacity to give. So this series in particular is more on the stewardship side of things. I I want to thank Nathan Barnum uh, for his contribution to this series. Uh, He has a wealth of knowledge and experience as it pertains to finances, but Uh, He is also faithful and generous in his giving and his participation uh, as a member of this church, and I honor him, and I thank him for contributing to uh, this series. Can you appreciate Brother Nathan Barnum for teaching? His mama thought he did a good job, I'm sure. I'm sure she helped him with his notes, so... But the, the first lesson really dealt with stewardship, how do you view money, and then the second was you can't be a good steward without giving, and uh, an, a great point that Nathan pointed out, and uh, I thought it was a, a really strong one, is if it's ours, God can't bless it, but when it's God's, it can be used to be blessed, and the reason giving is so important to us is if it's not ours, if we 
uh, or if it's, if it's in our possession, a lot of times it becomes idolatry. But when it's put in the hands of God, God can multiply it and use it for his good. And I'm going to uh, talk about that a little bit uh, later. But we realize that just because we give, it doesn't mean that we're good stewards. And, and Nathan, again, brought, off, brought up, out that point uh, last week. But tonight, we want to continue this, and uh, I want to make a quick plug for next week. Next week's going to be a really awesome week, and it's going to conclude the series. Uh, And I would encourage you, make sure you're here. It will be very, very practical. And you're going to hear from a panel of financial experts who are going to be uh, talking about some very practical ways to handle your finances, to be a good steward of your finances as it relates to budgeting, as it relates to taxes, as it relates to retirement, and as it relates to debt. And so you're going to get to, uh, if you would like, submit questions anonymously next week, and we're going to have a a panel type of uh, lesson next week, and I'm looking forward to that. But a cup, up until a hundred years ago, uh, some things changed. A hundred years ago or so, we were introduced to this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Today, it's keeping up with the Kardashians, but... <laughs> That was, that was a spin off of this idea, keeping up with the Joneses. Maybe you've heard that phrase, and maybe you just thought, well, that's a, that's a phrase people use just to, you know, talk about whatever. So, but keeping up with the Joneses was actually a cartoon strip that appeared in the funny papers. Anybody remember the funny papers? Uh, that... Across the uh, nation, this cartoon, Keeping Up with the Joneses, uh, appeared between 1913 and 1939. And the creator was Pop Mohammed, and he crafted this story about the McGinnis family. It was a husband, a wife, and their teenage daughter. And he used this cartoon to poke fun at a growing societal trend in America, and that was that People were living their lives, spending their money to impress other people. And the cartoon family uh, comprised of this, this husband, wife, and daughter were obsessed with this wealthier family, these more fashionable neighbors named the Joneses. And so they would consistently hear, uh, you would consistently hear about the Joneses through the reports of Mrs. McGinnis and their daughter. And it seemed as if Mr. McGinnis was always the one being pushed to wear certain things or do certain things or put certain types of cologne on because the Joneses, Mr. Jones, smelled really good or he had really nice socks and so you need to do that. And so it was this whole cartoon scenario. And So uh, it was uh, uh, obviously to make light 
of, of this family who was constantly twisting and in knots trying to keep up with another family. But it was a comical personification of that tendency that is, I would submit, is just as prevalent today. I think it's good to know it's not new to our society, but it's just as prevalent today. That we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. You ever heard that? We spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. And social media obviously has catapulted this whole idea. You think it was bad in the 20s, this whole idea of what do they have. Now it's in real time, this this real-time desire for things. How many have ever seen somebody post something they have only for you to go to Amazon and have it the next day? Amen. You may be seated. I have. (laughs) Um, The appearance of that, that particular comic strip at the beginning of the 20th century is no coincidence, though. It was right around this time that a new innovation in communication was entering homes and impacting the minds of Americans on a massive scale. Does anybody want to guess what that was? Not the telephone. Um, It was actually consumer magazines. Consumer magazines. And so prior to the turn of the last century, magazines were costly to print and very expensive to mail. As a result, the few magazines that existed were targeted at the rich and to those who could afford those things in a handful of cities. And two developments changed, though, and the first was that the invention in the late 1800s allowed for the high-volume printing Uh, of these types of things, and it became cheaper to print. And then, of all things to help us, was the U.S. Postal Service uh, allowed for second-class mail. And so this allowed for magazines to be sent at a reduced cost, about 10 cents a magazine, and then subscriptions plummeted also because now advertisers were paying for the magazines to be circulated. So this consumer magazine really spawned this idea and is what caused Mr. Mohammed to start writing about keeping up with the Joneses because now we were inundated with all this stuff that we should buy. Now, Some of these items were magazines about fashion, home decor, homemaking, uh, celebrity lifestyles, men's magazines focused on cars and sports and outdoor activities. And all of this, along with the explosion of technology and inventions, caused a dizzying array of new consumer goods to flood the market. And we had to have them. And so these advertisers knew that the convenience of items being available, these luxury goods, 
when people would see them in the magazine, they would begin to want them and feel like they would need them. And so here's, here's the interesting thing, and I think it's just important if, if at a last resort just to be wise in this area. Advertising evolved and is aimed at people feeling dissatisfied with their lives as they currently exist. That's the job of advertising, making you feel as if you are missing out or that your life would be better for you to somehow get a feeling of dissatisfaction. And today this is Obviously, just as prevalent, or I would argue even more prevalent, we see hundreds of thousands of ads all the time. There's even one stat that said we see 5,000 to 7,000 ads a day due to our uh, involvement in the internet and social media. 5,000 to 7,000. That's pretty significant. And so what happens is... And what the idea of advertising is, is for contentment to erode from our life. And so if you're going to get a large number of people to part with their hard or earned money to buy your new slick invention or product, you have to find a way for them to feel discontented. And this is where we find ourselves today. That's why uh, America thrives on discontented people. (laughs) You have jobs (laughs) because people are discontented. It's just the reality of it. So I want to talk a little bit about contentment and the power of contentment. The Word of God gives us this thought that contentment is a powerful force in your life. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. While this passage is referring to possessions, this idea of gain is not necessarily referring to possessions or material or financial gain. There is certainly an element, though, I would argue, of financial gain when you live a life of contentment. Right? Credit cards aren't used when you, you, when you live a life of contentment. Amen? Amen? And it got thick all of a sudden. It just got real tight up in here. All right, we're going to loose up again. No, it's true. Contentment is a powerful force in this world. And the real gain, though, is found when you combine godliness with contentment. Godliness, or putting God first. With contentment, this idea of being satisfied, saying, God, you know where I'm at. This idea brings about great peace in our lives. 
Godliness and with contentment is great gain. And discontentment makes you a prisoner. And we'll, if we're all honest, we've all had moments of being discontent. It makes you a prisoner to your own cravings. It makes you a prisoner to that never-ending cycle of acquisition and then disappointment. Always getting, but never being satisfied. Contentment is powerful, but there's an enemy to contentment. What is the enemy of contentment? It goes by the name of comparison. Few things will dissolve your sense of contentment and gratitude faster than the habit of comparing your life to somebody else's. It's a slippery slope that results in us sliding rapidly down into a swamp of resentment, envy, discouragement, and pride. And so I think we... No, the Bible instructs us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 12, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves by, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And so once we get into this comparison mode, we're constantly evaluating our life compared to somebody else's. Has anybody ever went down that rabbit trail in your life where you start comparing your life to somebody else? And so that evaluation essentially tries to argue out which is, which is better or which is worse. Am I doing better than this person or am I doing worse this, than this person? And it's a, unfortunately, it really has no end. It is never satisfied. Is my house better or worse? Is my spouse better or worse? And depending on the answer, the question each time, it will either feed your insecurity or it feeds your pride. And so you're, you're either feeding your inferiority complex or your acting like you're superior and you become condescending towards others and you lose your compassion for others. Neither are of God and both are rooted in the spirit of mammon, the spirit of possession. And so comparison is harmful to us because it invariably produces a resentment towards God. It will lead us towards a path of resenting God for what we don't have. And so when you become focused on your neighbor who seems to be doing better, it's not long before you question what they're doing versus what you're doing. Is it worth living for God? Is it worth paying tithe? Is it worth giving in the offering? It seems like they're getting ahead and I'm getting behind. They have this, I have that. And it's a, it leads us to ultimately come face to face with our relationship with God. And our comparison sets us up, I believe, to resent God. And it brings that question to us, is God unfair? Is God unfair? Oh, the fairness, the fairness word. 
you have kids, you know that word, the fairness word. And so we can only really be content when we allow our vision, our sight to be on God and to be specifically on the work that Christ did for us. I think it's interesting in the story of the crucifixion when Jesus when Jesus is being led to trial and he's brought before Pilate. This is what the scripture says in Mark 15, 9. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. That's why Christ was crucified, over envy, over jealousy. That's powerful. And Satan, what would Satan do? Satan wanted to inspire a group of people to brutally kill the sinless son of God. So what was his weapon of choice? Envy. Covetousness. It's that powerful in your life. And I would submit it's that dark in your life. That's why it's so vital for you to avoid the comparison trap. When you focus on others around you in their situation, you take your focus off God and God's good plan for your life. Now, following Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension into heaven, Jesus and Peter were having a conversation about Peter's future and what would happen. And in the middle of this talk, it's so interesting, in the middle of this talk, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on his breast at supper, who was John. So Peter turns around, him and Jesus are talking, he turns around, he sees John following behind, and it's like a sneak question. It's like he's going he's gonna to sneak in this question, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter seeing him, or Peter seeing him said to Jesus, but Lord, uh, or, or, and said, Peter turning said, who is it betrays? And the Lord said, or, but Lord, what about this man? And so Peter's all of a sudden pointing back, maybe this is the guy that's betraying you. He, he's maybe the one who uh, did it, Lord. He's back there. Let's talk about this. He's, he, I think he's the one who betrayed you. And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, you're comparing your life to John. But if I decide to allow him to live for thousands of years, what is that to you? You focus on following me. In other words, run your race, Peter. Let John run his race. And we can only really find fulfillment where, when we're in the center of God's will, doing what he created us to do. Real joy comes from purpose, not from pleasure. Robert Morris makes that statement. I think it's powerful. Real joy comes from purpose, not from pleasure. 
Deep, genuine happiness and fulfillment stem from living out your true purpose under God and not just experiencing worldly, carnal pleasure. And if you're fulfilling the purpose which God created you to fulfill, you have nothing, you can have nothing but happiness and fulfillment when you're doing what God wants you to do. Conversely, though, if you're doing what everybody else is doing and trying to live out their dreams, you're going to find yourself very unhappy. That's why the comparison trap is so dangerous. I'll make this statement. You can't live your purpose pursuing someone else's life. You can't live your purpose under God pursuing somebody else's life. Amen. There's an antique King Jamesy word that we don't use much anymore, but it describes a sin that really is very the very opposite of contentment, and it's covetousness. It describes this practice of craving what somebody else possesses. And it's this idea of covetousness, this commandment that we find in Exodus chapter 20. It's the 10th commandment that God would give Moses. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. In today's vernacular, God was saying, you shall not try to keep up with the Joneses. Clearly, God does not want us comparing our lives to others especially in regards to finances. And let me tell you what we do when we feel resentment or disappointment when we know somebody gets a new car or a new house or, or takes some amazing vacation and, and we allow covetousness to kind of settle on us. What do we do? We start looking for ways to find a new house or to find a nicer car or to how can we go on vacation, not understanding that maybe God had something in store for them or God did something for them that was unique. Covetousness, and I'll move quickly now, but covetousness, this idea of covetousness is, is found, Jesus sternly warned against it. And he said, take heed and beware of covetousness. In Luke chapter 12, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. How easy it is for us to covet possessions. How easy is it for us to covet? Anybody ever coveted a, a relationship or even, I, I know in my life, coveted a ministry or something somebody was doing? Covetousness is, is always at the door in our Life And Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. The New Living Translation says this, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And so when we look at the Ten Commandments, no other God, no graven image. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. When I, I, I saw this years ago, and I, I don't know, for me, 
it, it, it kind of stood out. When I saw that last one covet, it was as if I, I, I flipped it upside down. And to me, it was like the gateway to committing sin in all the other categories. That covetousness is that first sin. It's that first thing in your life that you kind of open the door to. And you say, ah, man, that's really great. And it moves us to lie. It moves us to steal. It moves us to commit adultery. It moves us to all these things, ultimately, where we say we don't know God or we don't need God. Covetousness is, to me, the gateway to these commandments. And I would think that it's important for us to understand because Paul would say in Colossians 3, verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. What does he say? Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If I ask you, do you have any idols in your house? Do you worship any idols? We would all say no. No, I don't, I, I don't worship idols But Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness opens this idea that we don't need God anymore. It's idolatry. We worship at the the altars of other people's stuff. Paul would tell the Corinthian church, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who's unrighteous? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor drunkards, or covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Covetous, right there in the list of all those sins, some of them we put a little light around and we emphasize those more than others, but Paul doesn't emphasize Sexual sin any less or any more than covetous. It's idolatry. And so I think it's important that we take note of covetousness in our life. Because covetousness is the enemy of contentment. How do you live content? You live content by being satisfied with what God is providing in your life. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. Hebrews chapter 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. But what should you do? Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let your conduct be without covetousness. That's a tall order. That's a daily prayer meeting. In this culture, it's sometimes an hourly prayer meeting. As much as we scroll and troll through the internet, it's a consistent, God, I'm not going to allow my heart to be opened up to covetousness because it sends me down a path that is not productive in my walk with God. And he says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. Now, what is interesting in this passage is we quote this passage a lot. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. Anybody ever quoted that verse? Anybody ever needed that verse in your life? But the context is, don't be covetousness. Don't be covetous or coveting, whatever. Don't covet. There we go. My God. Don't covet. Don't covet how good people can speak the English language. Don't covet that when people are preaching and they actually use real good English. Don't covet. Covet. Don't covet. Be content. For, he himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God's word is helping us understand a principle. Why would we ever covet what somebody else has when we have God? Why would you ever feel insecure or insignificant or unfulfilled when the God of the universe loves you and wants to have an intimate relationship with you? If you have that perspective, you can't covet. That's why he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to look anywhere else for your fulfillment in life. You don't have to look anywhere else for your help in life. Amen. Why would you covet if you are aware of that truth? And so we try to be content rather than to covet. The vital foundation of a life of contentment is simply understanding that no possession, no achievement, no position, and no person on the earth can fulfill the deepest longing in your heart. Only God can do it. No job, no promotion, no house, car, gadget, or recognition can satisfy the way God can satisfy. Material things are temporary. They're fleeting. They're prone to rust, decay, deterioration. In contrast, the things of God are eternal. And again, Nathan did a tremendous job helping us understand that this idea of stewardship is not, we're not saying that all material things are evil, but we understand the context of material things and what their purpose is. Yes, material things can bring joy, but they are not joy. Material things can bring us a happiness or a a, a security at times, but our real security, our anchor in this life is to be God and God alone. Because a thousand years, a hundred thousand years from now, that car that you just had to have, that, that recognition you just had to have, that, that educational pursuit, that house, whatever it is, that's going to be long gone, long burn up. It's all going to be for naught. But what's going to last? What's eternal? Men's souls. And so that's where understanding this this idea of contentment puts us in a position to love people the way God calls us to love them. The key, I think, is understanding the difference between aspiring to become something or to build something as opposed to simply lusting to have something. So it's one thing to want to better yourself, to to achieve something, to 
uh, be, be a part of something significant, that's good. But to simply lust to say you have or you possess something, I think, is a little bit of a different attitude. So far too many people go into business not because they're passionate about what they're doing, but simply because they view it as an avenue for obtaining wealth. Invariably, the get-rich-fast businesses lead only to dissatisfaction. And God delights in providing for us. That is why what Nathan pointed out last week was so powerful. When we give, we allow him to hold it And anytime God gets it, he multiplies it. Anytime God gets it, he multiplies it. He used the example of the the widow who had the jar of oil. She had her possession, but when she gave it to God, God multiplied it. What happened with the boy who had the small lunch? When God possessed it, it multiplied. God's mercies are multiplied on us every morning. When God has it, when it's in his possession, he multiplies it. And your life is no exception to that. When you surrender your life, when you give your life to God, he multiplies your life. Oh, hallelujah. Lamentations 3.22, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So we conclude tonight. We're to run our race. Not trying to run your race. I'm running the race that God has given me to run. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking where? Unto Jesus. I'm not looking at the cloud of witnesses when I run. I'm not trying to recreate something that happened 100 years ago in Pentecost. They accomplished a great work. They were who they needed to be for that generation, but I'm not running that race. I'm looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. So given all of that, why would you concern yourself with keeping up with the Joneses? Why would you ever allow yourself to fall into the trap of comparing yourself with others? Because comparison is the enemy of contentment. So Paul makes this statement. We know Paul was faced a lot of stuff, and he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment isn't based on your circumstance. It's based on the depth of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know that he won't leave you or forsake you? You know that he wants to provide your food, your shelter, your clothing. 
It's the comparison and our culture that feeds us all these other things that bring added stress to our life, doesn't it? I'm not saying I'm any exception to that. I face those same feelings where you covet things, you want things, you see things, you want to get it. And I think God's word challenges us. If we're really going to be good stewards and be people of great generosity, we have to put up the fence and guard against covetousness. Will you trust God for everything in your life? We conclude tonight. I'm going to give you two minutes for app time. And I'm going to pitch you a slow softball for one question and a knuckleball and a curveball for the other. You choose which question you answer. Maybe describe a time in your life where you were content in spite of the circumstances. That's the easy one. Describe a time you were content in spite of the circumstances. But some of you may be more willing to share and describe a time in your life where you have struggled with covetousness. Depends on who you're sitting next to. I know. I get it. But uh, we'll take just a couple minutes and then we'll come back and conclude. You got deep into a story, didn't you? All right, why don't you stand with me tonight? Like anything in our walk with God, we have good days, we have bad days. But I think God's word is true, that, that we will... We will live a fulfilled and happy life, a life of peace when we live a content life, not trying to have everything that everybody else has, learning to live within our means. My dad always tells me that God will choose your comfort zone. Let God choose your comfort zone. And it's really built around that whole idea of Paul that there are some seasons in life where you are abounding. There are some seasons in life where the bottom seems to be falling out. But if you can learn to be content in the middle of that, you're going to live a very powerful life, a very fulfilled life. And so I, I, I ask you to pray. Look at your life. Look at the things you're possessing. Look at even the things you're looking at in your life 
Is there anything that you're reaching for that is you could identify and say, you know what, this is because I'm just coveting something because I've seen somebody else have it. I don't necessarily need it. Identify it. Realize why you're getting the stuff you're getting, why you're buying. And, and again, I'm not against material things at all. I'm not against nice things at all. But I think we're constantly evaluating our heart so that we can be good stewards of the resources God has entrusted us with. So I'm going to pray for you. I conclude with this verse. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Next week, we're going to have a great session. I hope you'll come and be a part of it. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that even though it's challenging to me and it causes me to think a lot of, uh, about a lot of areas of my life, I pray, God, that you would help us to live out your word in this generation. God, you are not surprised by our culture. You are not surprised by the technology advances. Uh, you, are not, you are not blind to all of that. But, Lord, I'm, I'm praying that we would be able to be who you're calling us to be in this generation. I pray we would not just seek to do what everybody else is doing or to just uh, uh, try to uh, get what everybody else has. But, Lord, I pray we would run the race that you've set before us. And if there are times that you call us to do without, I pray, God, that we would be submitted to that. If there are times when you call us to celebrate in ways where maybe, uh, God, it, it might not make sense to people, I pray we would have the courage to be who you're calling us to be in this generation, that our focus would not be on what other people have, but Lord, what you're calling us to do with the resources you put in our hands. Help us, Lord, as a congregation. This is a, a great, generous congregation, and I pray you would continue to allow us to fulfill your will, not only locally, but globally through the resources you've entrusted us with. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. God bless you. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.